Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'm your host. And today on the show, we've got uh, Rhonda Mayrorda. Rhonda is uh, an author. She's a speaker. She's uh, a fund manager. She's an advocate. Um, and uh, more than that, I would say Rhonda is an incredibly powerful voice in the discussion on transracial adoption. So we are continuing our series. This is week two of our series on transracial adoption, which we kicked off last week. And uh, I can't say enough about Rhonda. You are going to love this interview with her. Uh, a few kind of notes or, or just heads up as you go into this episode. One, it's about 90 minutes long. I would just deeply encourage you either setting aside time to listen to it all at once or allowing it to be uh, something that you listen to over a few different sits, like a, a you know two or three different commutes or whatever. Uh, it is such a valuable conversation. And uh, right up even into the last minute, Rhonda is um, giving some really, really great um, advice uh, toward transracial adoptive families, as well as uh, for those who have been adopted, uh, adoptees, uh, advice for them as well. It's a it's a really powerful, really great episode from somebody who uh, has done everything from co-authoring four books to acting as a consultant on uh, This Is Us. Uh, she is a powerful voice. She's awesome. You're going to love her. Uh, as a reminder, it is November, which means it is National Adoption Awareness Month. And so uh, we mentioned this last week in the show, but uh, this this honoring of this month started 15 years ago um, with the Department of Health and Human Services. So they did that, um, set, a, set aside November as a time to educate on adoption and, uh, and just to raise awareness for the thousands of kids who are waiting for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. So uh, if you want to read more about that, want to learn more about the history of NOM, you can uh, read about that in the article that we've linked in the show notes. And... Um, um, listen, it, it, this, is, this is something that we, um, again, mentioned last week, but to say it again, just as a reminder, for those uh, who are most impacted by adoption, which are adoptees, the month of November can be a time that brings up a, a mix and a range of emotions. And so uh, we're going to stay true to our mission here at ETC, and we're going to spread, uh, spend this whole month uh, talking to uh, and listening to adoptees uh, who are part of transracial families. And so um, we are doing that. Uh, specifically so that we can have uh, a time for us to be uh, able to learn and if need be to make changes uh, to our thoughts, beliefs, and actions. And I uh, just really encourage you to listen and to take notes even, um, but just to listen and to honor uh, Rhonda's story as she shares her experience. And um, as always, this, this time is going to be a, a time that inspires and challenges us to live uh, more deeply connected lives together. And so uh, without any further ado, Miss Rhonda May Rorda. Well, as we said in the intro, our guest today is Miss Rhonda May Rorda, and Rhonda uh, is here as long uh, as well as Tana Ottinger from ETC. And so, Tana, uh, Rhonda, thank y'all for being here today. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, Rhonda or, or have no context as to who she is, um, she's a fund administrator at an educational advocacy uh, organization in Lansing, Michigan. Um, Rhonda is an author, a speaker, um, adoption advocate. Um, I, I mean, if we just read the bio, it's going to take the entire episode. So we'll let Rhonda share more of herself, but she's a, a fascinating person. And Rhonda, we're super, super grateful for you being with us today. Thank you so much, JD. We're already family and friends out here because you, the fact that you use my middle name, I don't even let my parents use my middle name. We're family. <laughs> <laughs> I love awesome. it. I love it. We're good. We're good. So why, why don't we why don't we start here, Rhonda? 
if people are coming into this episode not knowing who you are, do you mind sharing a bit about your story and kind of context for who you are, and then we'll go from there? Okay. Um, I um, am an adult transracial adoptee. I was adopted at the um, age of two uh, into a white uh, American family with Dutch heritage. Um, my journey, um, I thought, began then. Um, trying to assimilate in my family, um, and I and I realized as I was struggling for my identity uh, that my my beginnings begin uh, prior to adoption, and so um, this journey that I've been on has taken me to writing four books on uh, transracial adoption, three. Uh, with my co-author, Dr. Uh, Rita Simon, who passed away around five years ago. But they were groundbreaking pieces of work. And then my latest book, In Their Voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. Yeah, no big deal, right? Just lots of books, <laughs> several degrees, like impressive work. So um, I, I would say, and I, I mentioned this to you off the air, but for if, if, you're, if you're just hearing about this work for the first time, um, you want to pause the podcast and get to Amazon and just go ahead and order the books yep. to read them because they're, I, I would say they're essential reading as um, transracial adoptive families. And, and for those of you who are listening to this and might be contemplating adoption and you're, you're wanting to figure out kind of, hey, what what do I need to know that I don't know? Uh, let's start there as, as one of those pieces. So um, Rhonda, what, I'm, I'm interested to know kind of what, what brought on the writing of the books and uh, will you tell us about the journey of those coming together and then will you talk a little, because they are, it, it is not just your commentary and your co-author's commentary. I mean, it's a very comprehensive look at, at the whole adoptive picture. So can you tell us about the books? Oh, absolutely. Um, so um, many people may know that in, in the United States, transracial adoption has always been controversial. Uh, the, the idea of uh, black children in white homes has um, created angst among many groups, particularly political groups like the National Association of Black Social Workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the transracial adoption of black and biracial kids in white homes has ramifications for all transracial adoption um, families uh, uh, adopting kids from many different backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was always interested as an adoptee and a student of transracial adoption to understand the controversy. And that's yeah. really what uh, defined my pursuit in um, writing about transracial adoption, uh, not just looking at the research, but also talking to those that were impacted uh, by transracial adoption, whether it be black and biracial transracial adoptees, uh, white non-adoptive parents, white non-adopted siblings, and then finally talking to the communities in which these uh, children are coming from. Um, so, so that's the underpinnings, but I think to really understand in this country why this issue is so um, 
I should say, why it's just so emotional still um, is because if we go back, and I'm going to now date myself, and you guys can look it up so you're going to know that I was born in 1969. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. I mean, I, I try to cover those things, but it's like, well, all the books say 1969. At some point, we just stopped trying. We just we stopped, stopped trying. trying. We stopped trying. So We're done. We're done trying. <laughs> We're done. So... So when I was adopted in 1969, uh, excuse me, when I was born in 1969, I was placed in an African-American foster care home. And you have to understand this is at the end of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, prior to that, it was, it was it, you know, black children and brown children were, were supposed to be race matched into black homes and brown homes. Also, going a little bit before that, um, uh, for many black and brown adults, they were not part of um, the, the, the grassroots effort in communicating formal adoption as an option. So for black and brown folk, right. the idea of adopting a child formally was something that adoption agencies and the the institutional structures did not promote. Yeah. And which, so which is so, I, I I'm I'm 36 years old and I um, have been a parent of a child of African descent for 10 years. And it was within the last 12 months that I learned that, which is wild. Yeah. And I, and I couldn't understand when I started talking on this issue 20 some years ago, yeah. um, white parents were asking me, well, are even black family, uh, black parents qualified oh my God. to adopt children? <laughs> And I could not understand where this was coming from until I did research. Y'all can't see our faces, but they're buried in our hands right now. Just seeing yes. our reactions. Yes. And, and, you know, of course, you know, when I was married, um, my husband was uh, African-American, um, still is. Um, but he, um, <laughs> he, he was at an ad- adoption of it. This is right when he got sort of acclimated around transracial adoption. And um, afterwards parents came up and talked to me and this one couple came up and they asked the question again. Well, what gives black parents the qualifications to adopt from the foster care system? Now I was just like mortified, but I was going to be a little diplomatic. And then my former husband says 400 years. (gasps) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so this also is, being a human being, like being a yeah. human being, man. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And he was, he was going back to slavery when, when black women were breastfeeding white babies and, right. and, right. And, and, right. and, and changing them and caring for them, yes. even at the sacrifice of their own children. Yes. Um, cleaning homes, uh, you know, so, so this is the, this is why this whole issue continues mm. to be controversial yeah. because there was a lot of conversations that have not been had on this subject on a national level. So I wanted to go back to 69 when I'm in this uh, African-American foster care home 
And this couple, I'm told, was uh, uh, upper middle class, but they were over 40. So in New York, they were not allowed to adopt. So interesting. (laughs) Nonetheless, I'm in this home. Um, I'm told by my adoptive parents I had wardrobes of clothes. I had, um, uh, there were dresses. Um, I had, my hair was, was maintained. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I was lubed up lotion. Right. Um, and so there was a sense that I was cared for. Right. Yep. 1971, two years later, I get placed in this white Dutch family um, my parents uh, were recent graduates from um, a private college out in Grand Rapids called Calvin University, which is a fabulous university. I'm on the board of it. It's a fabulous university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, gradu- they had graduated. My dad was a school teacher and principal now out in East Palmyra, New York. And they had a son of their own. Christopher T. Rorta, I called him Duffy, Duffer, Duffy. I still call him Duffy. He's like in his 50s. Hey, Duffy. I still call him Duffy. Right. So he doesn't like it. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, he's as cute as he can be. Blonde hair. He's three years old. I was two at the time. And I remember him like it was yesterday. He's staring at me. I'm staring at him. Um, I, he's carrying a blanket in the back of this car where I first met him and, um, I wanted it and I pull it and he's like, no, it's mine. And he says he's red. I'm like blue. And so we're (laughs) fighting. We saw the difference, but Duffy became this playmate of mine. He was like my protector. He, he was just so wonderful to me. Um, and he became the guide in my family and, um, and, and, and then became a, a close friend as an adult. And now he's one of my confidants because he has a skill set and experience in the black community to give me some guidance when I, when I need my bearings. So, um, he is a fabulous person. Um, we, we have talks, especially with what's going on politically in this nation. We have talks, they get yeah. heated. Um, but, but he continues to be one of my confidants. So I get into this family, the Rorta family. And this is what I want your listeners to understand. For every child of color, and I'm just speaking primarily child of color adopted into white homes. For every child of color that is adopted in a white home, they are asked to do more than what most Americans are asked to do. And that is we need to uh, understand the new rhythm in our families, the new smells. We need to understand new cultures. And we have to adapt, not just unsatisfactorily. We have to adapt and perform in such a way that our white parents feel comfortable. Mm. 
So if you can think about a child from Ethiopia or from Haiti that gets brought over here in the middle of winter and let's say drops down in Sioux Center, Iowa, corn stalks, I've been out there, corn stalks, snow, and they get placed in a white home and the parents and the children are so happy. Um, that child has to figure out how to digest the new food, has to make everyone feel comfortable, because if not, the weight is on that child. Mm. And if that child doesn't perform right, the child can get, quote unquote, rehomed. And I've seen this on Facebook. I've seen this. I've never, I mean, me growing up, I never heard of rehoming. But that's, those are the stakes for every child of color. And if the parents don't feel comfortable, Mm. we have another conversation to be had. Mm. So going back, and I'm still stuck on this, going, you know, in in 71, I'm adopted. In 1971, that's when so many other black and biracial kids were coming on the radar as being adopted by white parents. The National Association of Black Social Workers is getting quite concerned about this. They, in fact, they are alarmed by this. And one year later in 1972, they go on record at one of their conferences and they oppose transracial adoption. And I just wanted to read a paragraph just so your listeners understand the depth of this. Yeah, please do. Um, the president of the NABSW, William Merritt, had said, he said, black children belong physically, psychologically, and culturally in black families in order that they receive the total sense of themselves and develop a sound projection of their future, dot, dot, dot. Black children in white homes are cut off from the healthy development of themselves as black people. The socialization process for every child begins at birth. Included in the socialization process is the child's cultural heritage, which is an important segment of the total process. This must begin at the earliest moment, Otherwise, our children will not have the background and knowledge which is necessary to survive in a racist society. This is impossible if the child is placed with white parents in a white environment. Dot, dot, dot. We, the members of the NABSW, have committed ourselves to go back to our communities and work to end this particular form of genocide which they called transracial adoption. And their sentiment was just as strong as Native Americans. Hmm. First First Nation folk who had witnessed um, pockets in their communities of children being pulled and placed into white homes. And the narratives that we've heard from adult uh, uh, Native American um, 
adoptees talking about their experiences are hard to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, we can certainly, you know, talk about that later. So when the, NA, when, when the NABSW made that statement, there were ripples throughout the nation. Some sure. white parents even returned their black children. Mm-hmm. And my parents still kept me. However, what I will say in that era, um, while adoption agencies did not provide a lot of training or any training on black children adopted into white homes, black and biracial children adopted into white homes, I will say these parents at least had the civil rights movement, um, Mm -hmm. which created some fire. Right. Meaning right. They, they, I'm hoping they looked at their black and brown child and said, dear Lord, I hope we can do right by them. Yeah. And yeah. so they organically tried to put things together so yeah. that they could do right by them. Now, how that looked in everybody's family is different. Mine, whoo, there were some like, wow, uh, that, that was an effort, <laughs> like, um, you know, putting oil in my hair and that kind of stuff. Um, my parents did try, but I would say one of the things that they did um, that was incredibly helpful to me uh, was making the move from East Palmyra, which was a uh, predominantly or all white community except for me, um, and moved to the Washington DC area where you saw more diversity of people. Uh-huh. And, and that was huge. Um, but it didn't, stop there. Um, they joined a church. It was a Washington DC Christian Reform church. And, um, in this church, there were transracial adoptive families and there were, uh, black families, uh, from the neighborhood. And, um, the story goes when, uh, we came to the church, I, by this time in three, Duffy's four, um, our family sitting, uh, in the, the, the chairs, um, in the sanctuary and the organist, uh, Miss Myrtle is playing and she looks over the top of the organ and she sees this black child in a white family. And she hadn't seen that before. After church, she walks up to my parents and she looks at my father, who's tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. And she says, I do not approve of a black child in a white home. Wow. But since you have adopted her, it looks like we are going, I'm going to raise her with you. <laughs> Myrtle. This is the, yeah, Myrtle didn't play. <laughs> and this is the first time my father, blonde hair, blue eyes, said yes, ma'am, to anybody. Wow. Yeah. What? And so Myrtle, she mm. she prayed with me. She taught me. She reminded me that I was black. She uh, cared for me. Her son, my godbrother, and my brother Duffy uh, were best friends. And um, Myrtle, she gave me a sense of uh, belonging in a sense. So, and she was able to rephrase things. My, my parents could say the same thing, yeah. like, um, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. 
Myrtle could say, honey, and look at me. Yeah. And it, yes, ma'am. I mean, it sort of <laughs> felt a little bit different, you know? Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, she, and Myrtle always had these beautiful, bright shoes. She was like high society. The beautiful, bright shoes with stones on them. <laughs> you know, and she could just lift up. She could lift up a shoe and keep on playing Bach. And she, <laughs> and like, yeah, so I'm chomping gum in church, and my parents were just fine with it. Myrtle, she <laughs> hit a note wrong. Catch a high heel I, to the face. <laughs> I was like, Oop. She, would hit, she would hit a note wrong on her, like, because she was playing, and you'd be like, oh, that's yeah. me, and that's yeah, the that, gum. She knew. She knew. And and that sh- and if I still acted up, that she would just be up in the air while she played, and she could play him, Bach, Mozart, gospel music. That's awesome. And and so so this was a gift. Yes, this is a yeah. this was a gift, and she was in my life and supported me along my journey until she died in two thousand six. Wow. So. Um, that was huge. Um, I still, though, as an adoptee, struggled with my identity. I struggled with my hair. Sure. I wanted it to be like my brother's blonde. And, you know, when he stuck his head out of the window in the car, it would just blow a sure. certain kind of way. Mine yeah. was like wool and didn't do much. And it, and it got dry. And yeah. when I noticed it the most is that our family spent a lot of time um, at the ocean. We went to Ocean City. And, okay. um, you know, you, you take those waves and you play, you know, you build your sand castles and you got sand in your hair and stuff. But I noticed that my hair would, would get so brittle and literally break off. Yeah. But my family didn't know what to do with that. And, you know, in in one moment, you know, Myrtle said uh, uh, to my dad after church, this child needs moisture in her hair. That was how she said it. And so my father was like, okay, after church, we're going to go to the Banstra's home. They also had transracial adoptive kids and uh, we're going to do her hair. And so my dad picked up this grease. Um, back then it was called Bergmont. It was like in these big jars. And it was it, it looked like um, lard. That's how I can best describe okay. it. But you had different colors, blue, yellow, and green. And yeah. he picked blue. And we get over to the banstras. We have brunch. And then we sit down. And my dad's like, okay, I want to do your hair. And he tells his friend Jim, go get... Um, a spoon um, because he's reading the instructions on the back of the jar. It says apply generously. So I remember Jim brought a spoon and my dad's no, I need a bigger spoon. (laughs) And so he gets a bigger spoon and my dad has me in between his legs and um, on the, on the, on the um, carpet. And then he takes, he, he then takes the lid off, takes the spoon and he just like, puts lumps of the stuff on my hair. Oh my. Okay. And then he massages it and he thinks he's just doing it. You know, he's getting his hair hands greasy. Wait till Myrtle sees this. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And then he does a pat pat and he's like, okay, honey, you're done. Oh. Oh no. Oh no. So I go into the bathroom 
Oh dear. And I'm looking at my hair and literally you could scramble an egg on it. There was so much grease. Oh, and it gosh. was glistening blue. Blue. And oh. it stayed, I mean, it was so greasy for like a week and a half. I mean, I would put my head against the window in the car. My brother was like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> you're on the couch. People were like, knew where I was going because they saw these like oil, uh, you know, slabs everywhere. Right. You know what? Your dad was scared of Miss Myrtle shoe at him. <laughs> Right. <laughs> He's like, I better make this right or I'm going to get the shoe. <laughs> so I'm going to give my dad an A for effort, but, I mean, but for but real. The, but the outcome yeah. was an F. No, that's right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Right. You can do the law of averages on that one. But um, so, so there was a lot of attempts. Mm-hmm. And, and on my part, I was just dying to fit in and that is what so many adoptees that we can see through research through narratives um throughout the country dying to fit in yes 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 dying to fit in and um and and for me uh that became um incredibly Mm -hmm. hard when i turned 11 Mm -hmm. uh and that was because we had been living in a predominantly white neighborhood. Right. Much like the research shows, but predominantly white neighborhood. And um, my father, you have to keep in mind, he's Frisian. Now that's like the, 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 the they, they live in the northern part of Netherlands. Okay. And I okay. would say the folk up there, they are gorgeous, but they're crazy. <laughs> and I identify, <laughs> I identify as a Frisian. So I guess I'm with it. Sure. But crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And so he asked Duffy and I, um, at this time, um, we had a sister, Jean, but she was a baby, so they didn't ask her. Um, But he asked, my parents asked Duffy and I, uh, okay, we're moving, where do you want to live? And after the hair debacle, I cared deeply about where I wanted to live. I was yeah. like, okay, I got to get engaged. Yeah. And Duffy could care less. But my dad says, uh, do you want to live on a boat? Wait, what? I know. Frisian folk. Um, do you want to live on a boat? Do you want to live underground? Or do you want to live above ground? <laughs> Duffy, who don't care. Me? I had my hand raised. I care. (laughs) And I said, well, dad, I don't want to live on a boat because I want to be able to step out on grass. And he said, okay, we won't live on a boat. I was like, okay. And then I said, and I don't want to live underground because I want to see the sunrise and set. He said, okay, we won't live underground. And so I said, okay, we'll be living above ground. And he said, yep, we're going to live above ground. (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was addressed at that point. See, this is why I circle around today on every issue. Mm. Next thing I know, our family moved in an all-black neighborhood. Well, predominantly black. My dad chose the lot on top of the hill. So you had homes on both sides going to the top. And right there, he decides to build a geodesic dome. 
A geodesic oh. dome is a round oh. house. You see them in California. We were in D.C. in a black neighborhood oh, on no. top of the hill. In a dome. In a dome. Right. You're, not blending, round you're, not, house. you're not blending in at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and no at that point, there were no trees. Uh, yeah. where we just like this area. And there's windows, squares, hexagons, triangles. I mean, it was a globe of windows. And my mother didn't believe in curtains. So oh, no. here I am trying to blend in to my family. Mm-hmm. And we just moved into a black neighborhood, built a geodesic dome on top of a hill with all of these windows. Oh, no. With no curtains. No curtains. My hair is a hot mess. Mm. I haven't found lotion for my skin. Mm. I don't know if I'm black or white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I am still trying to die, die to fit in. Yeah. Wow. How old were you then? 11 years old. E. And so um, that was the turning point. And see, for many adoptees, they were still living in predominantly white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I was moving into this black neighborhood. And so everything became up close and personal and I could not avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my brother and I have a paper route and uh, he had, I had a hundred homes. He had more than a hundred homes. And we would go down the hill to the neighborhoods to do the paper route. And, um, and then on Saturdays, we would collect uh, money. Mm-hmm. And I had it down pat. I had my card in my bag, and I would go down this hill, and I would go so early in the morning. Now, I, am, I was not born to wake up early, but this ins- for adoptees, we will, we will find incentives. If it means... <laughs> To avoid black folk down the street, I'll wake up at 4.30. <laughs> so this is what I was doing. I was trying to manipulate the situation, which many of us do. Yeah. Yep. And it worked brilliantly up until it did. Mm. I'm going down the hill with my card in my bag. I dropped the card. I dropped the bag. Um, oh, excuse me. I, I'm going down the hill, and then I feel this breath over my face and I froze and then I dropped the cart and I dropped the bag I heard somebody say something and I just ran up the hill into the geodesic dome into the bathroom that didn't have walls and I mean didn't have like square walls it was weird but anyway and I threw up Mm. and my mother was there my dad actually was there too and um was like, well, what happened? And I'm like crying, I'm shaking, I can't breathe. And I finally say, somebody said hi to me. Oh, wow. And it was at that point where my inner compass said, there is a big problem that I I had to confront. Because if I was afraid of the black young men on the street, on my street, Simply, they, all they said, all this one gentleman said was good morning, hi. And I was so scared 
what I had realized is I was absorbing the same media stories as my own family was absorbing, as Americans were absorbing. And somehow I, I was afraid of this black man and thought of him as a threat. And I realized that if I was that fearful of him and I could almost think of him as a threat, how do I think about myself? Wow. And that's when I told my parents and my godmother uh, and the church, (laughs) I'm not going to a Christian school. I am going to the same high school as everybody on that street. Yeah. Yeah. Now I made that decision because of my inner compass, but that decision was not what my parents wanted or my godmother, but I did it anyway. And this is where I would say for many adoptees who might have a strong inner compass that tells them, I have to do this. The road can be lonely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to stop right there and talk to you about the other aspect of the, the study on this issue. So we just heard the case against transracial adoption, that it was essentially cultural genocide. Yeah. It was then in 1972 Co-authors like mine, uh, Dr. Rita Simon, um, started doing studies, interviewing uh, white parents who adopted kids of color. Dr. Rita Simon and her associates are the only ones even today that have done a 20-year longitudinal study. She did hers from 1972 to 1992. Okay. And... That was a groundbreaking study, along with a dozen other studies focusing on transracial adoptions. But Rita's focused on white families in the Midwest, over 200, that uh, had adopted not just black and biracial adoptees, but also um, uh, uh, Korean and um, Latino uh, adoptees and a few Native Americans. And her research and this dozen of other studies basically are the underpinnings of our current federal uh, policy legislation on transracial adoption. Um, The 1994 Multi-Ethnic Placement Act signed into law by uh, Bill Clinton, well, authored by Howard Metzenbaum, who endorsed the first book of ours and um, signed into law by Bill Clinton. But what that law said is what the research supported. And that is that the research was showing that kids were adapting into white families and were growing, developing in a healthy way. And that these kids knew that they were chocolate, knew that they were, you know, darker than vanilla. Um, but they loved their parents and the parents loved them. They were responding and they felt comfortable. And so because you are seeing these, these kids, so they weren't 
adults yet. I mean, at the end of Rita's, there were a few adults, but right. but for the most part, they were children. Yeah. Um, they were adapting to these communities. Yeah. So the bottom line was love is enough. Mm. So parents went, those parents in the early 70s that were like, <gasps> they were like, well, wait a minute. We're not harming these kids. Love is enough. <laughs> President Clinton signed that into law. The doors were open. I mean, manna from heaven for many white parents. Yep. Yeah. Because now they didn't have to, if they wanted a black baby, they could get a black baby. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. it was great for them. But what about the adoptees? We never talked to the adoptees. And that's where I started when I was reading these studies. That's when I was like, I was uh, just graduated from Michigan State with my master's degree. And I'm picking up that phone and I'm calling all of these researchers Yeah, that did these studies, asking them um, first, how are you? Why did you do these studies? <laughs> yeah, I had to, I had, oh, I was calling everybody. I, I was, I was praying before I did it because I was like, um, how are you? Why did you do these studies? And all of them, except for Rita, were like, oh, we're so glad that we could finally talk to an adult adoptee. We were wondering how you turned out. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and another researcher told me um, this was a hot topic back then and I could get a good dissertation done. <sighs> yeah. So, so here I am as an adoptee struggling for yeah. my identity, right? not knowing yeah. how to make it in this world yep. and doing it alone. I'm going to Barnes and Noble trying to figure out, are there books that, that talk about my nuanced experience? Nothing. Right. So that's why I started, I started interviewing black and biracial adoptees. <laughs> I know this is a lot of information. I, I listen, I just want to, I, I just, we just need to block off the rest of the day. I'm going to order dinner in and we're just going to keep talking. Cause like, I, I just need to hear all this all of this, all of this history. Yeah, it gets good. Well, okay, keep going. <laughs> okay. So it gets good. It gets good. And you know, this is, well, I'll, I'll leave that to end. But so the first book, In Their Own Voices, Transracial Adoption, happened because I started interviewing black and biracial okay. young adults. At yeah. this time, we were 26 years old. Yeah. Okay. And and were these friends of yours? Did you just like seek out to do like an, a straight academic study into and no, no. So first, I was interviewing friends, but I didn't have a lot of friends that were yeah. black, adopted in a white family. Right. And then it, it just came like floodwaters, where people, word of mouth. Etc. And at this time, I called Dr. Rita Simon because I had a question on her research. Because the whole issue I had with her research, or the what I would call the traditional mm -hmm. empirical research, yeah, is that the researchers, many who were all you know were white, 
-hmm. We're interviewing parents about their comfort level. (laughs) How did they feel about a black and brown child in their home? Sure. And how was that child performing in their home? And are they glad that they adopted the child? Now I'm, I'm diluting it a little bit, but I'm just, that's, that's essentially what it was. Um, but it never asked these white parents about their skill sets mm-hmm. and their comfort level in the community in which this child was coming from. Right. It never asked them, do you have black friends? Uh, when was the last time you had a Latino sitting at your dining room table? Right. Right. Instead, we heard... You know, what we like to do is celebrate their culture. Well, you know, egg rolls on Tuesday and soul food the next (laughs) month on Wednesday is not adequate. I'm just saying as a transracial adoptee. And all that food is good, but that's not cutting it. Sure. Right. Hmm. Right. But um, I know many that did it. Um, (laughs) But I'm like, okay, that we got to go deeper. And so, um, and so... The research never put the accountability on the parents. The accountability was always on the adoptee of color. Which is a fat, like a complete. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we were doing tap dancing, trying to please our parents and to suck up Many of our struggles, if somebody called us poop on the playground, we try to keep it in because mm-hmm. we assess, can our parents handle this or not? Can mm-hmm. they handle what's going on? I got called the N-word. Can they handle that? Mm-hmm. And for me as an adoptee, I struggled because when I made that move to go to that public high school. Yeah. I was so focused on making sure no black person hurt me. I, you know, it was during the crack cocaine days that, 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 yeah. you know, I didn't get uh, <laughs> traumatized by anything. I had my head on a swivel. Yeah. Now there were so many incredible people at that high school. And I identified with those that were into the same things I was, whether yeah. it was in, yeah the arts, whether it was getting ready to go to college, et cetera. Right. But my head was on a swivel. Yeah. That, and focusing on black males Mm. that I walked into a situation that I had never even anticipated. I then get molested by a teacher, Mm. a white teacher, cornerstone of the community, Mentored black youth, good looking. My parents saw him and, uh, you know, he was next to God. And that's when this whole colorblindness, this love is enough. We don't see color. Um, We love you just the way you are. You came, you know, you didn't come from our tummy, but you came from our heart. This is when that all blew up Mm. in my family. Because, 
And I know this is very intimate, but I, I, I'm doing this because I adore, I adore you guys. And I believe so much in what you're doing, but that is when I realized that my parents, when it came to whiteness and power, they chose whiteness and power over their daughter. And that was a road that I had to walk alone. And that's where I say for many people, adoptees, they're walking some of these journeys alone because of the narratives that they walked into when they were adopted. And that is why I always say, if you are going to adopt a Latino child, a child from Haiti, a child from Guatemala, a child from Colombia or India. Yeah. What do you think about their people? Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the community? Do you think you're superior, inferior, or do you think that you are humans and yeah. you're going to, to, to learn about each other's cultures? That matters. And, um, Put it this way, transracial adoption is so bold, it's so complex, it's so context-tied, it will catch anybody in a lie. Yes, 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 yes. You, you, the only way this works is if you do it authentically. That's right. <laughs> it's the only way. And so here I am, I'm like, well, shoot, I've got to uh, figure out how to make it. And so now I'm, and so, so this is also why I'm writing this book and the first one in their own voices, because I wanted to know how other adoptees were navigating. And um, there's 24 adoptees in that first book and they were phenomenal. And they all said they loved their parents. So the issue wasn't that we weren't loyal to our parents. The issue was we self-sacrificed some of us so much. We didn't know who we were. But when we left our families, left white privilege, and went out there on the street, all of a sudden society, they didn't care that my father was blonde hair, blue eyes. They didn't care that another parent was high up in some organization. Society saw this. They saw the skin. Yeah. Yes. And this is why I say to even white parents who want to when I speak, want to tell me that their Ethiopian child is really Caucasian and certainly not African-American. And what I say to them is that it is critical that your child understand their Ethiopian heritage and that they um, recognize that's a big part of who they are. It's also important to understand in America Uh, some of these police officers and I have family that are police officers, but some of these police officers and we have now seen it, it's been in the news. Yeah. Um, but some of these police officers are, are, are not pulling back their guns because the child is from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. They're not making distinctions. That's right. If you're from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, or you're from Chicago, or if you have a really good looking father. Right. They're not making distinctions like that. Right, right. And so what happens is for many transracial adoptees, and we saw this in the first book, leaving their family, our narratives become the narratives of black and brown people in this nation. But we never had the discussions that are being had in black and brown communities. 
Yeah, that's right. We have not had those conversations. Now we've gained a lot being in our families and that is so good to talk about. Sure. But we walked out of our families without the tools Mm. to navigate in dark skin. And when you look at black and brown adoptees, we know adoptees in general are four times likely to commit suicide. You put race on top of that. And you put these political conditions on top of that. And you just, you you just pump that up about 50, 75%. And so we go out here and we, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. I remember interviewing Seth Himrod in the first book. He was a stockbroker and he was living in a house right next. He was living in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, he was living in a house right next to his parents. And he's sitting on the porch, enjoying the evening, enjoying the stars. And all of a sudden the police car rolls up on him. And gets out and is like, boy, what are you doing there? Now, he grew up in a white family. He's like, what? And then, of course, we have a little bit of privilege. So we're like, he's like, well, shoot, I'm enjoying the the, the stars. Right. Not knowing that that can get you killed or hurt. And so how do we deal with that? And it's not just police officers. It's how do we how do we get our first home and move into I remember moving into my predominantly white community and my former neighbor uh, uh, saw me and slammed the door. Now, we later had a come to Jesus. I think I made her some brownies because I'm (laughs) like, "Uh, uh, uh, we cannot live this close together. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and you bad. cannot be polite. So yeah. you find yourself having to educate. <laughs> but that's, that's what we saw in, in their own voices. A lot of people didn't know who they were. They didn't know how to navigate in dark skin. And they didn't have a network in place to do it. Then in 2007, Rita and I came out with In Their Appearance Voices, And that was talking now, having conversations um, in the backdrop of research with um, parents of the adult adoptees in the first book, including my mother. Um, And many of them talked about the love for their children and talked about wonderful times with their kids. But the question was, do you think love is enough? And you had parents realizing that Love is critical, but we didn't realize race mattered. And we thought the best route was to be colorblind, to say we don't see color. And many of them uh, recognized that was not, that was not advantageous because their cute little black and brown kids actually turned into that's right black and brown adults yeah yep somebody that could be a threat yeah in society and 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 then they didn't also understand that many of us are mirroring black and brown folk so like i said to my brother when he was getting married we had i was like now duffy we are not gonna have jim crow at your wedding 
You're not going to put all the black and brown folk in one section and the white folk. Now, we had Jim Crow at his wedding. And I, oh, that was loud. That was not good. It was me and my husband and my uh, Korean cousin who just came back from Afghanistan. So his words were not, you know, very uplifting when he saw it either. He was sure. like, this sure. is I'm like, this is Jim Crow. It's divided. And we practiced this. We practiced this. It's like, Duffy, this is where you have to Put in your voice. Yeah. 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 And then so in 2009, Rita and I came out with in their uh, siblings' voices. Um, so these are the white non-adopted siblings. Um, and they were more militant than the, the adoptees were because what they felt is that they, they also, uh, well, let me back up. They were like, we weren't asked to have a black and brown sister. Mm. or brother and this colorblindness did not help us be able to support them yeah and they were seeing the distinctions that were being made within their own families extended families within their own communities yeah and they were like you don't know that doug is this dynamic person um but yet because of his color uh, Scott, who was one of the white non-adopted siblings, he talked about having to drive up to Doug's girlfriend's house, go up to the front door and knock on the door. The father comes out and smiles because he sees Doug white. And then he lets his daughter come uh, out uh, with Doug and Doug and, and the girl are walking back to the car. And as the car is pulling away, um, excuse me, Scott, as this the car is pulling away, Doug comes from under the dashboard and he's black. This is the things that needed to be done because race was an issue. So we're navigating something, but not able to talk about it in our own families. And also what we're talking about happened during your lifetime. This is not stories from 1705 or 1710. Like, this happened with bell bottoms and disco and Bill Clinton and 10 years ago and five years ago. Like, yeah. Yeah. And yesterday. And, and yesterday. That's right. That's right. right. It will happen tomorrow because we aren't living in a post-racial society. Right. That's exactly right. And so that's why after I, you know, we did this landmark trilogy, this once in a lifetime thing where we're getting these perspectives. I was like, well, now it's time for me to go to Cancun. And I was like, I'm <laughs> done with this adoption. I, I was 20 years of my life. I'm done. Yeah. I gotta, I, I, you know, I gotta live. Yeah. Um, well, I was always living, but you know, propping <laughs> my feet up a little bit. Not in Cancun so, you were. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, it's like God speaks to me and you know, he's got to speak to me or clobber me over the head to write another book. Because I'm like, okay, Lord, I thought we were going to go to Cancun. But um, <laughs> so without a deadline. Um, and so what I realized is that in this whole journey of transracial adoption, when I look at what adoption agencies are doing, when I look at what adoption groups are doing, when I look at the deep issues that many adoptees are having to now confront, including yeah. me, these are emotional landmines. You think you're fine, and then boom, 
mm-hmm. you're hit. Um, you have you have adoptees looking for birth family who had closed records. You have uh, birth families contacting adoptees via Facebook. You have all these things going, and this colorblind approach is not working. Right. And so I finally said, okay, I don't see it, but we need to do, I need to, I don't know why I say we, I need to do <laughs> a book on uh, perspective of Black Americans. That book was, all of these books have helped me. And, I, and Lord knows, I hope they help so many other families. But this book changed my life. Mm-hmm. Because now I had to go to the Black community. Mm-hmm. Mind you, the Black community that has been left out of the discussion of how their children are doing. So I had to come with humility. I had to come with an apology. And I had to come begging for help, not just for me, but for the hundreds and thousands of families impacted by transracial adoption, not just in this country, but around the world. And I said, we need you. No one in the adoption community has ever said to the black community, we need you. No adoptive family has gone to the black community as a whole and said, we needed you. We need you. That took a lot of prayer right there. And, um, but I, I knew that this was the only way that I was going to be able to continue my journey as a black adoptee. And so I talked with the great grandson of W.E.B. Du Bois. I was talking to black thinkers in the community. That's amazing. I even talked to hip hop folk. I talked to um, folk that were grandparents and uh, teachers and successful people. First black mayor of Philadelphia, who happens to be my godfather, but we talked (laughs) with people around. I mean, I was pulling in all the stops. You have no idea. I I was pulling all the stops. And um, we had a conversation. And we, you know, by the time I interviewed all these people, I could divide the book in eras, Jim Crow, civil rights, post-civil rights, people who lived in these eras, who could talk about their experiences and could talk about what values were instilled in them, what lessons did they learn to get through into adulthood, um, what, um, you know, what they hold true today and things I heard was, were, um, uh, we stand on the shoulders of those that come before us. It takes a village to raise a child. Um, I heard that you have to be twice as good to even get opportunities. Yeah. I heard that our, our family was built on faith perseverance, and determination. 
and a whole lot of forgiveness. I learned that each and every person I interviewed gave more than they received and they didn't have to do it. And so when you see the heart and soul of the people that I talk to and the fact that they stopped their lives to care for not just the black and brown adoptees in these families, but, for, but care for the parents and the white non-adopted siblings. It's a gift that if I think about it too long, it will make me cry again. And we don't want to do that because we'll have a Baptist service. I'm, I like, like, you know, crawl all over the floor. Testimony it's really time. loud and really annoying. So I'll spare you all. Um, <laughs> you much rather me sing. So and that you don't want. Well, that'll so, never happen on this side of the microphone. <laughs> so, so I will say this is that, um, and you can ask me any question after this, um, that I believe in our families and that's why I'm still at it. That's why I yeah. still speak and advocate and consult and, and do what I can do in Hollywood um, because I want um, to see more of our families reflected on the national stage and see the nuances. Yeah. I want um, adoptees to know that they are worthy and have value and that their experiences matter. I want birth parents to know, like my mama, um, uh, to know uh, that I am grateful uh, for who mm -hmm. she is. I would not be who I am today if it was not for my birth parents. Yeah. Um, my, my birth mama wanted me, there was a list. Now she didn't play either, she had a list. And that was, she wanted me to be raised in a Christian home she desperately wanted me to have a college education and she wanted me to keep my name Rhonda and she specified it must be spelled with an H. And, and that information along with DNA is what led me back to my birth family. And, um, and so this is where I say um, it does take a village and everybody's journey is real and has purpose. Yeah. Uh, and when we talk about supporting our children, uh, we have to see them fully. We have to see all of who they are yeah. and embrace their um, ancestral history because I carry the souls of my ancestors. That's right. And um, and let me tell you, when you find your birth family, you figure out why you got the rhythm you got, you know? And uh, I, I was like, well, shoot, I've been told I laughed too loud. And I'm like, well, there must be a flaw in me. Well, then when you go to a family no, reunion, I'm like, well, <laughs> well, shoot, I can't buy that honestly. Yeah. It's like, well, no wonder. You know, so I tell everybody when I come up north, because they're still not used to me up here in Michigan, but I tell them it ought to be thankful. I'm a whole lot quieter than my family is. They're even louder. So, <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm digressing. But I, I, I just uh, hope this was helpful and I'm available to ask any questions. Uh, well, you don't want to open that Pandora's box. Uh, I've got some questions, but I've been talking. Tana, do you have any questions you want to ask if they're out? 
I mean, I, I'll just say thank you, Rhonda, for even just sharing so much of your story. Oh, um, yeah. You've taught us through just the beautiful narrative of, of your story. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that. Um, I had a question about how adoptive parents can participate sort of in anti-racism, but I feel like you've sort of hinted around that a good bit too. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that is something that being an anti-racist is sort of a something we're talking about right now, right, as a community. And yeah. so I feel like you've even hinted to that a little bit on social media. So unless there's something else you want to say about that. I mean, that was- I, Well, I will say this. Um, I was consulting with a group and um, I wrote a list of, what I think successful families look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I have my thoughts on anti-racism. See, I, don't you like how I'm doing this? I'm prepping you guys so that I don't come across too militant. I mean, I think that conversation, you know, obviously we're in Memphis. And so like, that's a, uh, the conversation about race and racism and what it takes to, to, uh, fight against that at all is a constant conversation here. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I've had a friend say to me was just, look, you know, if you're just a regular white family, it's great to speak up. If, if, you, if you're a white family, it's, it's great to speak up. We appreciate the help, all that. Y'all have skin in the game if you have black kids. It's not an option to just speak up. Like you're, That's exactly you, right. You and, have to be part of the that, movement. That is... Um, that is a conversation I just had with my brother. I flew in and we had a heart-to-heart conversation. And, and um, I guess you're going to make me just go there. Um, <laughs> but I, was all, I had my nice notes here, J.D. Thank you. I got to go there. Now, my brother always says, Rhonda, sometimes you can talk to people and you're all polite, but then when you walk away, they're stinging for two months. So I was going to go with my, you know, laid back list here. But, no, but you, now, you go so wherever you want to go, Ron. I'm not, no, I'm not I'm directing there you. Now. <laughs> Come on. One, one of the things that I will say is, is as adoptive families, mm-hmm. it is critical that you build a family plan that is inclusive of everyone you have in the family. So if you have a child from Mexico in your family and you have a black child from Haiti, I'm just, because I have friends in Haiti, I'm just throwing that out. Haiti, you have to make sure the spiritual, emotional, physical needs of every family member is supported. Amen. That sounds academic up until you live it. So, yes. so this is where we're having a problem. Yeah. In this nation, we are confronted with voting Democrat or Republican or some can vote independent. Now, I can't tell people who to vote for. I can't even tell people how to raise their kids. All I can do is give suggestions. But what I will say, based on the calls I get from white adoptive parents, many white males who are crying on the phone and talking about how their child from China 
is being bullied and threatened and told that the most powerful person in this land is wanting them to go back to their country or that they're from shithole countries. Now, I'm not, this is what I'm getting. I have six tropical, artificial tropical plants in my home and I have two grown godchildren. So I just want to be very clear. I do not have any adopted children or bio children in my home. Yeah. But I am an adoptee and I care deeply about our families. And this is what I'm getting. So what do I say? I ask, who are you voting for? And the reason isn't because I care. Yeah. The reason is I want them to hear who they're voting for because we have to reconcile things. Yeah. If a child of color is being traumatized in their neighborhood, in their schools, even in their place of worship, or if they are one, I always said a chocolate chip and a cookie. Yeah. You're the only one. Yeah. And you have to go to family reunions mm-hmm. and people are laughing about these things. Yeah. How would you feel? Yeah. How would you feel? So we need empathy with this transracial adoption thing. Yes. And we have to, you know, in 2007, when I was doing that second book, well, when it, right before 2000, well, it was 2007. Um, I'm out in Colorado. I'm at a culture camp. Or no, yeah, it was culture camp. And um, I, parents always at the end of the event will talk to me. And this couple comes up to me and they're holding a three-year-old black little girl. She was as cute as she could be. And they said, Rhonda, we need your advice. And see, this is what I get. I get these questions. Mm-hmm. What is your advice? Mm-hmm. And they said, we want to go um, to a family reunion, but we need your advice. I said, okay, well, family reunions are wonderful. What's the issue? And they said, well, this is the first one in five years. Uh, my brother is having it. And, you know, this is something we've been looking forward to. And, you know, the father is holding his child. And um, he says, but the problem is my brother doesn't want any ends there. Oh, what? This is, this is, he doesn't want to, and he said the word. Now, this is, that was the first time I literally had to walk away and pray. And then I came back and I said, and, and, and then they continued and they said, we're wondering if it would be okay to get a babysitter that we could go to this reunion. Oh my God. This is what I'm talking about when our families aren't reconciling, um, not recognizing, and what I said to him, this is your baby girl. And if she's not invited, you're not invited. Say it. And you need to be very clear. If your family is not protected, if your family doesn't have 
skills, experience, whatever it needs to be healthy, you need to make changes. Yes. Yeah. So my thing is this. If you don't accept me or my child, you don't accept me. And until you do, we just cannot have a relationship. Yeah. It's that important. Yeah. If not, don't adopt black and brown kids. If this is a problem for you, don't adopt them. Yes. Because it is black and brown children and adoptees that are bearing the brunt of this. Right. This, this quote unquote, some would say experiment. We don't know how this was going to go. And we're bearing the brunt of policy mistakes. Yep. Of agency mistakes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Of families colorblindness. We're bearing the brunt. That's right. That's right. Yes. So what I say is, what is your family plan? And, and what is the conversations you are going to have in your family about where you stand on racism? And that includes if you have extended family. Yep. Yeah. If the narrative is that, and this is, you know, I'm, this is the conversation I've had with my family. I'm like the American side of the family. Because I don't have any problems with the Dutch family yeah. in Netherlands. It's yeah. the Americans. But if your only connection to someone who is black is if you're feeding them in Africa through your church missions, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you're comfortable, if they are shuffling and don't have teeth or are in prison and away from you, if that is the only comfort level you have, why are you adapting a black child? Because the narrative that I inhaled in my own family, and this is from things that are said and not said, is that I'm less than, that there is disparity between me and my white brother and sister. Yeah. Disparity in treatment. And kids and adults can pick this stuff up. That's right. And so how does that make me feel? Where do I belong? And so now we have, and I'm going deep here. Now we have a situation for an adoptee. Does the adoptee make themselves small Mm. to continue to sit in that limited construct? Or does that adoptee have to go it alone? and fund themselves Mm -hmm. if the construct doesn't change. Yeah. So that's why I have here, when adopted by families, uh, they are not well prepared. So when transracial adoptees are adopted by families, not well prepared. Thank you. I have to rephrase that. (laughs) How do they feel? They feel lonely, abandoned, isolated, misunderstood burdened by the need to navigate the world and realities of race and racism alone, unprepared for the way the world views them, burdened by the need to make things, quote-unquote, okay for their families while struggling with their own identity, and disconnected from their family. 
I'm taking a break from my family right now in America. Hmm. Not because I don't love them, but because there were some things that were too toxic. Yeah. Yeah. But I am, I love them, but they got work to do. Yeah. Because I have grown and I have done work on me. And um, I think it was Maya Angelou said there's some, sometimes when you've got to move from the table. That's right. And so families that are successful at transracial adoption, this is where I have joy, 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 joy. Understand the history and reality of race and racism in America. They're humble, they're curious, they're flexible, they're open uh, to being different. I think this is why I get along with my family in the Netherlands. They're comfortable Mm -hmm. engaging and interacting with people from different communities. They understand that parenting is for a lifetime, even when it doesn't feel good. They are not afraid to ask for help. They recognize that they must uh, put the needs and feelings of their children first. They recognize that uh, they have to give up some of their own privilege and preferences in order to create emotional safety for their minority child. They're proactive about maintaining a diverse community and inner circle in which their child can be reflected. They have identified key support people from the culture of their children to help quote unquote, walk with them through the parenting journey. They're not afraid to talk about race. They understand the importance of birth family and cultural connections for a lifetime. They understand that their job is to teach their child how to function within both worlds, the world of their birth and the world of their adoption. And finally, to take the time to try to understand when it fe- what it feels like to walk through life in the skin of their children. Well, I guess I would say, We all got dropped in Bangladesh tomorrow and uh, I was in charge of the trip and uh, there's about 50 of y'all there and I made sure that I got a round trip ticket and you're now having to live there for a lifetime. (laughs) You got to leave your Diet Cokes behind. No trips to McDonald's when things get a little hurried. Organic food to the wayside <laughs> and you better <laughs> and learn that language and, and if you don't like the food just suck it up and try to make sure you don't show it and if you get traumatized if you got some grief and you got some loss suck it up mm-hmm. because you better be smiling and you better be grateful and don't talk too much about the days when you were in the U.S. because that may make me rehome you We got to start thinking about what these kids are going through and doing the work. And when you do that, you see the best of transracial adoption, which reminds me, this is us is on tonight. Okay. This is all of the work. work. (laughs) You got, this is us. All right. Here, this is, I've showed enough. I'm telling you, you got to have fun. (laughs) I've showed enough restraint, Rhonda. It's our favorite show on TV, uh, my wife and I. It's it's painfully cliche for that to be our favorite show because it's it's super similar to our family. And, of course, we get the annoying question from every person, every white person who sees a commercial, like, oh, my God, I bet you guys especially love This Is Us, don't you? <laughs> I mean, that it is you guys, except for the daughter, yeah. the little one. Like, it's it's you guys, but the older three. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, we can't help it, though. It's so perfectly written it's so brilliantly acted it's so like and 
And when we yeah. watched, I think the thing we were struck with was, uh, and I think I might have actually texted y'all. I think we texted the audience. Oh, yeah. Like, I see we're like, uh, who is consulting with this show? Yes. <laughs> hey, they're doing it. They, let me tell you something. So, yeah, they will you have, explain your connection to This Is Us? Well, well we were like, you know, that, that's top <laughs> Other than I will say this. I'll say this. Secret. Oh, it's top secret. Yes, it's top secret, but I will say this. This Is Us is doing the work. Yeah. From the top level, from the creator, Dan Fogelman, to the executive producer, Jess Rosenthal, uh, to all the other producers, to the writers, shoot, to the people who are bringing in the food for the actors. They are doing the work with humility. They have, I know they have all four of these books. Um, you know, even Sterling, I will say this, Sterling Brown did say to me, wow, you know, it's hard, you know, it's nuanced to play a transracial adoptee. I said, I know. (laughs) Try doing it in real life, Sterling. We do this every day. So he, he, he has this latest book. I mean, he holds true to this. Mm. Um, I love it. So, so what I'm saying, what I, what I will always be thankful for This Is Us is, uh, now that you know my age, I was 48 when the first, when This Is Us came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see, you know, the nuances of my own family. And like accurate representation. I did FaceTime when I was out there and all these people were trying to say hi to my brother. He never knows where I'm going to land. Am I going to be in Africa? Am I going to be in Hollywood? Am I going to be, am I going to be in Texas? And back where I really enjoy is back in Netherlands by the windmills. And literally I, sounds strange, but I find, I commune with the cows. I I have no business on being on a farm. Every time I go out there, I have to go to a family farm and I beg them, can I just milk the cows? (laughs) And, you know, it puts their whole day back like six hours, but they just like accommodate me. It's it's a, it's a soothing thing. So my brother and my sister don't know where I land up. They, they, they don't, they don't. I yeah. love that. Hey, I'm digressing. Are you guys, I'm digressing, but you know I love you. No, we we love you too. This has been so great, Rhonda. And I, I think just the, uh, it, you know, Tana and I have prepared a bunch of questions. And it, honest to God, for everyone listening, we did not send those questions to you ahead of time. And it might as well have been the outline for the whole conversation. Like, Really? You just you just walked right through every point that we wanted to get your feedback through, and we're just so grateful. And so I I, I wanted to ask this, and then I'll I'll say one more thing. But uh, we would love, with your permission, to type up that last kind of guide that you said um, for transitional adoptive families and how to do the work, um, and just have it in the show notes or as a resource for them to to use a company. Yeah. It. Okay. Let me tell you. Everybody wants this list, but I can only, because I was doing it for a consulting, I can only say it. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, that's great. That's so great. hopefully your listeners got it. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> like, that's perfect. They can, they can follow the role and take some notes that they want yeah. to, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 Pause and rewind. So what we'll do, what we'll do is obviously link all of your books in the show notes and, um, and, uh, again, just, 
my if, website. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me through the Facebook. I will say the latest book in their voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption, has a plan, which includes some yeah. of these. Oh, good. Love it. Yes. So so buy the book. Even better, buy the book. I yeah. can't reach it from where I'm sitting, but it, it is sitting right on my wife's nightstand right now. Like, and we've been yeah. uh, working through it. It's just, yeah. Thank you for, for oh. that, for their time today. Um, and oh, Donna yeah. said this too, but the, the vulnerability and the, and the like grit and toughness it takes to work through what you've been working through and then to offer it uh, to the world yeah. and to just recycle and share that information over and over again with the world is something that I hope I can and pray I can have that kind of courage one day and so thank you so much for that Um, you are so welcome I believe in us I believe in our um you know I believe in society trying to understand this because we all have to I want all of us to belong yes yeah and I want all of our stories to matter amen yeah Well, I love it. Thank you so much. Well, we will talk to you soon, and and we will be shamelessly begging you to come on the show um, as often as you will in the future. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank I'm, you so I'm much. Sure, I'm sure. Maybe after your viewers hear me, they might be like, "Well, maybe she shouldn't come back on." Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't think that's going to be the case. Also, they <laughs> don't control the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> You two made me so comfortable. I'm like, well, let me tell you where I stand. That's so great. That's so great. Thank thank you you both for all the great work you are doing for children and families. And, And I will say this. If I take my time to talk to anyone, it's because they're phenomenal and they're doing things that I can't even do. So thank you. You You are doing great work and uh, your listeners should be uh, very blessed um, for what you're doing. Rhonda, you're the best. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Man, just a huge, huge thank you and shout out to Rhonda for joining us today on the show. Um, I hope that that was as, as, as helpful and as powerful for you uh, as it was for, for Tana and I as we were talking. Um, man, that was so good. So uh, I would just encourage you, if you've got other folks in your life who um, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a uh, friend, maybe it's somebody you know who is either considering adopting transracially or who already has, uh, please share this with them. Please shoot this, this uh, uh, episode of the show to them and, and just give them the chance to hear Rhonda's voice. Um, secondly, I would just say, and I can't, I mean, this, this sounds like a shameless plug for a guest, um, uh, and it is, but I would also just say um, you, you are only going to do yourself a massive favor if you buy and read her books. So I would just really encourage you to go and um, buy those books. We've linked them in the show notes um, for you to be able to get on Amazon, um, but buy those, study them, read them, listen to them, uh, and allow that to inform uh, your perspective and your um, your decisions as as it pertains to uh, this greater conversation of transracial adoption. So uh, whether you're a family member of uh, a transracial adoptive family, whether you are uh, considering it yourself, man, I just can't recommend it enough. So uh, Rhonda, 
Thank you again for joining us today. Uh, and for Tana Ottinger, for Kyle Wright, who edits and mixes our audio, for Tad Jewett, the creator of our intro and outro music, and everybody here at ETC, uh, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week for episode three of our Transracial Adoptive Series uh, here on the ETC Podcast. Thank you.